Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 91. The only interesting things I could find about 91 are it's the name of a card game, and it's also the name of a boy band from Kazakhstan. In the interests of research, I checked out a YouTube video of the band. There's three minutes of my life I'll never get back. Let's just say it's not my kind of music. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been an interesting week. We're now in phase three of the lockdown easing here in Scotland, which means, in spite of the fact that masks are mandatory here to go in stores, more people are going without them, and have abandoned the concept of social distancing. Must be nice to be immortal. Before I get to more of what happened this week, I'll let you know who we have on the show this time. Our guests are Lisa Harrison, Senior Brand Manager at Norseland, Ecotensile Creator and CEO Peggy Cross, George Haymaker, Founder of Rethink Ice Cream, and Jay Watson, Sourcing Engagement Manager for Global Sustainability at General Mills. And of course we have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from Stone X. And so to what's been happening. Well, no rain at the weekend, so I managed to do a hike a little further away from home because we're now allowed to do that. I hadn't driven more than about 15 minutes for four months, so it was pretty tiring. And I think the fuel cap on the car has healed over. In other news, I was at a show this week in the central US. The food wasn't expensive, I didn't get my foot run over by a suitcase on wheels, and I didn't even get hit by someone looking down at their phone while walking. I also didn't get lost once trying to find booth A406B in Hall 7C Level 2. It's because it was a virtual show. I have to say I didn't clock up many miles walking around except to the cafe, actually I mean the fridge, and the scenery looked remarkably like Scotland. Other positives were that I didn't get confused by a train ticket machine or have to get in a long line to go through security and show a press pass and be told I can't go in because I'm nine seconds early. I also thought of setting up a lot of plates around the house with different foods on them so I could pretend I was getting free samples. But that wouldn't have worked because either the cats or my son would have got there first. Besides, it's difficult to eat samples with a mask on. The show in question was Shift 20, put on by the IFT, and it actually felt quite easy being able to contact companies, although it was a very well-organised website which made a huge difference. But I suspect as soon as it's safe for people to travel, events will once more be very important. You just can't replace face-to-face events. Or samples. It's funny how ten years ago you got free pens and then it was free USB sticks and recently free reusable bags. I suspect the next promotional items we'll get when events start up again is free face masks. Hopefully without company logos on them. I'm not sure I really want one with Explore Our New Range of Natural Pink Food Colouring on it. But I would give money for one that doesn't steam my glasses up. Someone this week told me to stop them steaming up. With the mask on, you should rub soap on the lenses. Might be just me, but I suspect if I do that I'll have soap streaks and not be able to see anyway. And when it rains I may look like my head is a giant bubble. Anyway, moving on, we will have a special Shift Show podcast coming up in a couple of weeks with interviews with several of the companies that were there, or kind of there. 
Before we get to our first guest on the show this week, I'll run through some of the articles you may have missed since last time. Friesland Campina is closing its Reichefort dairy plant. In the US, the May margin triggered the dairy margin coverage program payment. Sacco System has developed new cultures for mozzarella. Novozymes published its first half results. A new report says livestock is responsible for about a third of global human-induced nitrogen emissions. Schmidt has completed the purchase of Ample Hills Creamery. Marco Sweets and Spices has launched with five globally-inspired flavors of ice cream. The European flexible packaging industry has agreed a unified sustainability vision. And in the UK, Cathedral City, which is a brand of Saputo, has launched the UK's first cheese packaging recycling program. GEA has added new packages to its remote support. And Synergy Flavors has opened a new blending facility in Thailand. There's another place that I should be going just to do interviews for a few weeks. I think a lot of people are itching to get to events and start traveling again as well. Anyway, you can read these and more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to this week's guests. General Mills, the maker of Yoplait, Liberté and Mountain High yogurts, has announced the start of a three-year regenerative dairy pilot in western Michigan, a key sourcing region for its fluid milk supply. The company's partnered with Understanding Ag and Dairy Cooperative Foremost Farms to pilot regenerative practices and provide support to participating dairy farmers. And to tell us more, not about the company, but about the program, is Jay Watson, General Mills Sourcing Engagement Manager for Global Sustainability. So I guess the, the first question is if you could just give me a little bit of background on the pilot project that's taking place in Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a, a newly launched program with our pilot project with three dairies in Michigan. And Michigan's important because we have a yogurt facility in Michigan. And these three dairies uh, supply to that yogurt facility and are part of one of our key um, dairy cooperative partners. And so I launched a regenerative egg pilot there to study the outcomes of a different approach to farming and managing a dairy. It builds on some of the programs that we've launched um, in 2019 and earlier this year in our commodity grains supply chains. We have a, an oat pilot in the northern plains of the United States in Canada and then a, a wheat pilot in Kansas. And, you know, we're as much of a dairy company, I'd say, as we are a grains company with brands like Yoplait and Haagen-Dazs and cheese using products. And so really wanted to then focus in on our dairy supply chain, understand how we might activate a similar regenerative egg pilot, but within a different um, system, right? Where you have animals, where you have milking, where you have manure management. And so the pilot is really about looking across the whole system to say, how are, how are we building a surround for these dairies with technical assistance, financial assistance, if it works out to help them build plans for their dairies to manage the system a little bit differently with growing crops, you know, milking cows and then managing manure. And so focused on a place where we have, I think a little bit more direct connection to some of these dairies. And I've personally had a chance to visit all three of them. So it's been great getting to know them and figuring out ways that we can play a role as General Mills to help them in their evolution to, you know, soil health, regenerative principles, and some of the positive outcomes that we believe regenerative ag can bring. 
Are you partnering with anybody on this? Uh, and the reason that I ask is obviously because when it comes to different farms, the weather can be very different. You can have different microclimates. The soils can be very different in different locations, different ecosystems, etc. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd say part of our strategy for these programs and pilot activations is really to have robust training and technical support. And so we've partnered with Gabe Brown and a few of his organizations, one being Soil Health Academy for the training around regenerative principles, and then Understanding Ag with field consultants who then work one-on-one with dairies to develop unique management plans, regenerative management plans over a long, a long period of time, three to five years. And so that's how we're showing up by investing in a consulting partner to work with those dairies so that it is unique, so that it is tailored to their operation, tailored to their climate. You know, they're not that far apart from each other in Michigan, but we really think that that training followed up with support over the year to build the plan and then to action the plan to edit the plan as climate changes or weather changes or as um, different nuances with each operation kind of shine through. So that focus kind of one-on-one coaching and support is is critical as we've identified as part of our strategy and not just for the dairy pilot, but that's how we're activating in our other supply chains as well. So we feel like that gives the dairies the best kind of comfort to then experiment if it's something that's kind of built together with their consultant and coach. And, you know, as part of this, it's we're not asking for the t- farms to transition everything. It's really about taking steps that they're comfortable with. So they're really able to define what the plan looks like and lean into the appropriate amount of risk for their own unique operation. And I guess as well, if you have a one size fits all, then I guess the individual farms don't feel as if they're kind of being treated individually. So it's if it's individually tailored, then they feel special, I guess. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we can do what we can, General Mills, to help create, again, some of that surround, um, this enabling environment for these dairies and other farms. But it has to be something that works for them because they're the ones doing the experimentation. So they have to feel really good about the program and the approach. Um, and without a willing partner in these dairies and farms, then we don't really have a pilot. So really important that it's it's a program that's structured that uh, allows them to see the right kind of return on investment for involvement. You mentioned return on investment. How do you ensure that it makes sense economically? So I'd say when we think about our pilots, we really want to help to drive adoption of different practices, and then we need to study the impacts. Those are kind of the key pillars of all of our our programs. And so around studying the impacts, we have targeted outcomes that we want to measure and model over time. And one of those is economics and farm profitability, because we've been working in the sustainability space long enough to understand that if that's not part of the equation, we lose engagement with producers. We have to talk about economic sustainability and environmental sustainability and some of the social elements. So that is core to the focused measurement approach that we have to be able to model profitability and yield stability and monitor costs so that we understand that economic impact in addition to looking at things like water quality, water utilization, animal well-being, soil health, obviously, biodiversity. Those are some of the other outcomes that we're focused on, but profitability economics is core to the to the pilot activations we have. And and thankfully, our pilot coaches and understanding Ag and Soil Health Academy, like I mentioned, that's how they work with producers. It's about driving improved ecosystem function, but it's also very they're also very focused on driving improved profitability as quickly as possible because I think many under the impression that it takes time, you know, three to five years. And for some operations, it is going to take time to see some of those outcomes change and evolve. But 
again, it's really up to that operation to define what kind of risks they want to lean into. And if they want to drive towards um, improved economic outcomes sooner, they have the opportunity to, to build a plan with their coach that's trying to get after some of those things that may not be related to you know, their soil health rebuilding, being able to reduce inputs and seeing greater profitability that way. It might just be looking across the entire farm and dairy operation to see where are there opportunities to eliminate waste, to cut down on costs, but to still have these goals of environmental outcomes and economic outcomes improving over time. And what are the benefits to General Mills in undertaking these kind of projects? Yeah, I'd say there's a lot. I mean, we see the promise of regenerative ag is is not only being the right thing to do as a as a large food company, you know, one that really relies on the output of farming systems to run our business. So we see supply chain resiliency as being one of those those key benefits for General Mills. If our farm partners are more resilient than our supply chains are more resilient, that's good for our business. You know, of course, we we've also see the promise of lower emission farming and agriculture, and because we have a a science-based public target around greenhouse gas reductions as part of our climate ambition. And so these pilots give us the opportunity to kind of test, explore, learn, understand what happens when there's a different approach to farming, what that can do to some of these environmental outcomes that we care about. Um, I talked about water, about biodiversity, about farm profitability. I don't think it's a secret that there's some real significant challenges in the farm economy today. So we see this as being a possibility for you know, an environmental win, a win for producers and, and their resiliency, but also some of the economic and profitability components. I mean, a win for General Mills is being part of that supply chain so that uh, we're building resiliency and, and playing a role where we can to support producers because they're so crucial to our business and being able to run the way that we'd like to as a food company downstream. So lots of benefits to General Mills and happy to play kind of a leading catalyst role. It's not easy, right? There's a lot of white space that we're working in this uh, as we foray down this path, but uh, hopefully it helps instill kind of a greater amount of confidence in our key external stakeholders, even consumers, that General Mills is taking the right actions and trying to do the right thing as a responsible food company. You mentioned consumers there. Obviously, the environment is very high on everybody's mind at the moment and will continue to be, I imagine. How do you convey what you're doing to them? Yeah, I mean, we we know that we need to um, support this important work to launch these pilots, and and that's where you know work very closely with our brand teams and our communication resources to figure out how to tell these stories, and that's going to be really important work. It's going to be, I think, maybe just as difficult as kind of changing practices upstream because we have a bit of a gap to bridge with respect to understanding of farm economies, farm systems. And so to be able to talk about something like regenerative ag or soil health or different farm management practices as being a solution to a lot of these challenges we face as a society, we really need to help people understand like what are some of the challenges if they don't see them today. And so that communication and awareness and education is definitely something that we see as a key unlock to advancing and accelerating some of this work. What we realize is that General Mills has a role to play in that, but we need it to be kind of a broader industry effort so that it's not just General Mills carrying the flag and saying, you know, this is what we have as far as opportunity ahead of us. And here's why farming and farm economics are so important. And here's why healthy ecosystems are important. If it's just General Mills, we're not going to be able to advance in the way that we'd like to. So driving more of that industry collaboration and figuring out a way how to integrate it with some of our brands and businesses that feel like communicating soil health or regenerative ag or kind of different approaches to farming in partnership with nature will resonate with consumers. Those are some of the things that we're exploring, but uh, still pretty early days with respect to 
the consumer awareness engagement and the, some of the brand communication. It's been largely General Mills efforts and General Mills investments. And But hopefully not too far down the road, you'll see more of our brands stepping out and saying, you know, we believe in the promise of regenerative ag. We want to support farmers, right? And we want to invest in their education and their livelihood. And so I'm hopeful that we'll see more of that in the future. And, and I guess as well, it's a little bit difficult because you've got to not only ensure that the message is something that's clear and that it's not too complicated, but you've also got to make it so that it doesn't look like you're boasting. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's what I'm realizing after spending a couple of years in this regenerative age space now is that distilling this very complex matter and system and challenge down to be easily consumable that's what's going to be really tough both internally and externally and to do it in a way that's providing enough information but to your point like building some credibility in what we're doing and that's where i feel really proud about the general mills approach because we are leading with science we do want to be able to verify again some of these outcomes that we believe will come from a different approach in a regenerative ag system you know we have some leading scientists on staff now we have two phds one a soil scientist another ecologist so we're kind of putting our money where our mouth is to say you know if we need more research in the space we want to be leading in that effort and so our focus on measuring outcomes and not just talking about you know we need a different approach to farming that will be better and not being able to really quantify that positive impact that's why we want to focus on measuring soil health changes, measuring profitability changes, understanding what's happening to animal welfare and well-being, looking at biodiversity, looking at water to be able to say our regenerative egg projects that we're working with producers and upstream supply chain partners are actually regenerating resources and regenerating communities and farm ecosystems. So we need to measure. And so that scientific component um, that outcomes measurement is really critical to our process, and we're encouraging a lot of others that have approached us to learn more to take a similar approach where we have that verification or validation so that it stands up and it doesn't become kind of the next natural uh, in the marketplace. As far as the timeline's concerned, now that you've started on this, what's the timeline and when will you start to see data coming out of this? Yeah, so we'll be capturing data right when we get going in the first year, just understanding some of the baseline information, like what's happening, where are the dairies now, what kinds of, what's their current approach to management, what are some of the opportunities that they've maybe identified with their coach in doing some things differently this year and in future seasons. You know, we're going to need to baseline kind of current state, and then we're thinking that anywhere between three to five years down the road is when we'll have when we'll have an opportunity to talk about how things have changed and what has or has not regenerated. So really being able to talk about that on and off farm impact. But I think with respect to kind of results or impact, I really see there being a more near in opportunity to talk about the story of how um, these dairies are seeing a different way. And these little steps that they're taking, we should celebrate those because regenerative egg and some of these soil health principles and a different way of managing the operation is a big change, is a big step. And so these intermittent milestones, I think, are something we're certainly going to celebrate because it's going to help us feel confident that we're on the right path towards seeing some of those outcomes over time that we really need several years to see. But some of those leading indicators of um, dairies asking different questions, kind of challenging their existing assumptions, trying to figure out a way to best bring those to General Mills and kind of summarize those critical insights and telling that story about how the mindset is evolving, because that's a critical element of our approach. We really believe that 
in order to see a change in practices, we need to change mindset. And I guess you, you have some flexibility built in there so that you can tweak it as you go. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it hopefully doesn't come off this way, but we don't have it all figured out. There's lots that we're still learning. I mean, I mentioned that this is a, there's a lot of white space here. We will have, I think, great opportunity and, and I think a great responsibility to flex and adapt and be agile in how we think about our partnerships, how we think about the role that we play at General Mills, because I think we have an initial approach. That's why we call them pilots, but we're going to need to evolve that approach as we learn more of our time. So a focus on, on learnings and having a learning mindset going into this is really key for our teams at General Mills as we work collaboratively with the partners and producers just to go in with open eyes to say, we don't know everything. We're going to learn a lot. Let's learn together and let's figure out how we adapt and evolve to be most successful as we can coming together as as a suite of partners trying to do something very different. And once it's underway and this learning process has started, do you think it's something that you'll be able to roll out to other farms? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is definitely the goal. We have one co-op partner in these three dairies all supply that part of that co-op supplying to our yogurt facility in Michigan. We were underway in some uh, some other conversations with other supply partners to identify additional dairies who might be interested. And so we just made the announcement of the launch, but already thinking about how we expand, you know, in a pragmatic and a responsible way so we're not making it too large and, and really again focusing on learnings early on um, but I think yeah the goal is how can we create this enabling environment so that these producers and dairies can then become change agents in their community can share it with others can share their experience um, so that we have more demand for folks that are wanting to go down this path if there isn't that kind of demand that already exists in a certain region so that we have the ability to kind of come back to General Mills or find other partners who want to co-invest with us to say, yeah, you know what, let's bring this to another three dairies or another six dairies. The more the more participants we have, I think the stronger our data set gets. I mean, I think the more legitimate our findings and case studies become as if we think about, you know, the scientific literature. And so finding that sweet spot of an appropriate amount of dairies and farms participating, but without it being too much so it becomes too burdensome to manage and too difficult to, to kind of distill relevant insights from all the data that we'll be collecting is is what we're trying to figure out now but absolutely looking to roll out to other farms and potentially other regions too if, if we find that our approach is a successful one that's driving the right kind of value for dairies to um, decide to continue to engage over the course of several years. We have a regenerative ag 2030 commitment where we've committed to advance regenerative agriculture on 1 million acres of farmland by 2030. And so the more farms, the more dairies that we engage, the more um, that we're supporting acres and producers, I think the more contribution we have to that public commitment by 2030. And especially in these early years where we're going to be doing a lot of learning, how can we accelerate those learnings to inform the right strategies and, you know, three to five years that will be really critical to hitting our target, even potentially blowing past our target if we're thinking about all this work contributing to something like our our greenhouse gas reduction commitment. So, yeah, I think a lot to be excited about, Um, a lot of work ahead of us for sure. Just feel so very fortunate to be able to work with like leading experts and our consultants, really progressive dairies and farms and ranches that are, you know, putting their livelihoods on the line, you know, committed to like learning, like unlearning and relearning. And I think it's a great example of this supply chain collaboration with the food company, a dairy cooperative and dairies, where we're trying to figure some of this stuff out and um, excited to share some of these learnings, not just internally and externally with the General Mills 
uh, megaphone, but also with the dairy industry, peers, competitors. We do want to see this overall movement move forward and take off and invite more organizations under the tent who maybe have similar visions so that we can find these opportunities and drive the whole movement forward. We'll stay in the U.S. now, although this interview is about a product already available there, and it's been launched in Europe. And it kind of relates to shows as well, because when you do go and get samples, not that I'm obsessed with samples, but you often get a plastic spoon or a wooden one. But there are other options. Ecotensil produces sustainable, compostable paperboard utensils, which can be inserted into a variety of products, and in the dairy industry that includes yogurt and ice cream cups, or they can be used at events. I could tell you all about them, but it's a lot better and more informative if it comes from the creator of the products and CEO of the company, Peggy Cross. We started Ecotensil here in the U.S. 10 years ago, and we create paperboard utensils. So it's a utensil to replace plastic utensils. I'm sure I don't need to go into all the problems of plastic utensils uh, creating in the world. We're all very familiar with that. And now we're seeing more and more people really concerned um, and we're happy to be able to offer this alternative. So the basic concept of the ecotensil utensils is there a flat paperboard out of something similar to a coffee cup uh, but our green dot products are compostable and recyclable and plastic free but it's a similar material and they're structured so in one simple fold they become a very sturdy utensil so you can you know scoop yogurt um, and they will also uh, have a certain cutting capability. Like a, you can cut a piece of watermelon with this. You can cut a hard-boiled egg. They are pretty strong. And we've developed a whole range of products based on this concept. So some, for example, for designed specifically for ice cream. A very popular utensil is used for sampling. You know, you take a few bites and then a plastic utensil is going to be around for centuries after use it for a few seconds. We also sell into correctional facilities for as a safer utensil. And what we're really seeing a lot of interest in right now is our on-package utensils. So replacing the ubiquitous plastic spoons that are come with your yogurt pot. And uh, we're seeing a big demand for that now coming from Europe because of the single-use plastic ban uh, that's coming up in a year from now. Canada has a similar ban going on. The U.S. is slowly moving in that direction as well. So now we offer an alternative. How different are they from what's already out there on the market? There are a few, I guess, alternatives to plastic. Well, there's uh, one alternative to plastic that's been out there has been the, the PLA, polylactic acid, which is a corn-based plastic. However, um, they're finding those that really are not breaking down. Uh, they will only break down in industrial compost. And most of the utensils are not finding their way to the industrial compost facilities. And they basically are going to languish just as long in a landfill as a plastic utensil. The other alternative is a wood. And that's what Europe in particular is really focusing on right now uh, because they are not accepting the PLA because it basically is a plastic. The challenge with wood is that 
people do not like the taste of wood. You know, I've heard people describe it like it's like nails on a chalkboard or it just gives me chills to think about scraping my teeth on a wood spoon or slivers and whatnot. So it's not a great alternative for a lot of people. And companies put a ton of money into making their product taste really beautiful. And now you're going to kind of wreck it with a wood spoon. So that's, I think, a big reason why, particularly in Europe, we're getting a lot of response. Also, a wood spoon can't be folded. So what we're seeing is people asking for a replacement for the little folded plastic wrapped plastic spoons that snap into your dome lid, your top cup. You can't fold a wood spoon. If it's small enough to fit in their lid, it's too small to reach down into the yogurt. And we have a folded spoon uh, that works beautifully. It pops open, works beautifully for those types of yogurt cups and salad trays and whatnot. So that's how we size up against the alternatives. The PLA is also very expensive. Everything is more expensive than plastic. That's also an issue that people look at, but we're pretty competitive with uh, other alternatives. You mentioned the compostable aspects of this. Um, Some products that are compostable have to be put into special facilities and landfills to be compostable? Are these ones that you can throw in your own sort of garden waste or if you left one in the garden, it would decompose? How do they work in terms of compostability? Um, In terms of compostability, we went through the ASTM D6868 compliance testing, which is uh, in the U.S., the official testing to determine compostability. In an industrial facility, you have to you have to break down in uh, 180 days, some are even 90 days. These were completely indiscernible in the compost test that they did after 40 days. So they break down very easily in industrial compost as well as in regular compost. In my, I have really lousy home compost. You'd think I'd be better at it, but you know, I just don't get out there and turn it and whatnot. And this, the utensils are gone easily within the 40 days. I'm talking specifically about our green dot line, which is our greenest line. They basically just have a mineral coating on them. There's no plastic on them. And then it's paper. The mineral coating does give a really nice, smooth feel, really pleasant mouthfeel. I assume that, I mean, not that we're going to any events at the moment because they're all either cancelled or postponed, but I assume that they would be really useful at sort of big food shows as well. Yeah, the Eco Tasters have been hugely popular here in the U.S. where we've launched them initially. You go to Natural Products Expo West and over half the food booths there are using the Eco Tasters, those that are using utensils. So they've been very popular those are not really selling right now (laughs) because there are no more shows but the slack has really been taken up by this interest in packaging and you mentioned the fact that they cost slightly more than plastic how cost effective and easy are they for companies to introduce because i think often companies have the way that they do things and they think you know am i going to have to install all kinds of new equipment is it going to be cost effective i i would say that's a resounding yes in terms of um, companies being able, if you're trying to replace a plastic utensil on your package, that's the beauty of eco-tasters and eco-tensile products. I come from packaging and I love packaging, I'm a total packaging geek. And so I always am thinking all the way through, how is somebody going to get this on 
their package if they're using a robotic arm super application? How, what if they're using a bandolier to get their utensil on there? Or what if they're using centripetal piece of equipment to align the products? And so we design our products to be able to fit all these different types of applications. We have them wrapped, we have them tab locked, so they stay locked in a small folded shape. We have the shapes to fit all the different types of um, applications. So we've had that in the forefront of our minds. Generally, like I said, everything is going to be more expensive than plastic. And, you know, we're no different than that. But with the plastic bands coming out, you know, people need to find solutions and we're cost competitive and we offer a lot of ease of application onto cups, trays, over wraps, boxes, all kinds of different to-go containers. And I think there's a trade-off as well in so far as this is what consumers are starting to demand. Right, right. And we find, particularly in the dairy industry, we see more so in Europe than in U.S. cups that come with a utensil on the single-serve yogurt cup, uh, which makes a lot of sense. I'm actually surprised we don't see more of that here in the U.S. because we are such a grab-and-go society here. But that's where we can really see the utensils allowing these companies to still maintain having their utensil and have that advantage of being able to be sold in a fast food or a a grab-and-go type of retail environment and not have to compromise that convenience for their customers. I can't really get through an interview these days without mentioning coronavirus, but I know that just last week we were at a seaside booth where they were selling ice creams. Of course, you do the social distancing thing, but they're not selling them in cones anymore. They're selling them in the cups where you just take it and get out of the store as quickly as possible and go and eat it somewhere else. So I think that that's also going to be a factor in this is that people want that kind of product that they can just grab and go that has the utensil in the lid. Yes, yes, that's very true. People are very conscious of wanting to have their utensil potentially included with the package on the grab and go situations. We're working on a deli tray right now that's out of a board stock, cardboard, and we're looking at attaching the spoon right to the deli tray such that it's folded underneath and so it stays clean from the food and it stays clean from the exterior and no one has to um, touch a spoon or grab a spoon from a big pile of utensils in a big box or a bin or what have you where you're touching everyone else's. Even if they're wrapped, you're still touching everyone else's. And as far as scale, is this something that would be applicable to both small users, like the guy who's just making a few tubs of ice cream to sell from his farm shop, right the way through to companies churning out millions of products? Absolutely. Um, We do a lot of customization. So the larger companies are a great fit for us because we can customize to their specific cup, we can print it, we can make it snap into an existing um, roll top paper board lid. We can replace the disc um, if you have an inset tab lid that goes into an ice cream cup. And for the smaller companies, we have a lot of standard products that are affordable and available off the shelf. 
And I assume also that you will work with companies if they have a specific design or a specific requirement? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, particularly in the higher volumes, we can pretty much do whatever anyone needs to customize it. We do custom printing at all sizes and all uh, volumes of our standard products. So that the printing is interesting as well, because then I guess people can do things like promotions or giveaways, email addresses, that kind of thing. Exactly. We have a, a paperboard tab lid that replaces the lid for an ice cream cup where the spoon actually peels out of the lid. That can be custom printed with the company's brand on it. And um, basically, you're just replacing your lid with this lid that contains the spoon. So you're really minimizing waste. We can actually insert an ice scoop spoon into an existing lid where you might have had a plastic spoon or wood spoon, and that can be printed with a brand or a promotion. They were already in North America, and you've just launched them in Europe. Are they in any other places as well? Oh, we have distributors in Australia and uh, New Zealand, and also we have several distributors in Canada. We do have a couple distributors in the UK already, and we have a new uh, distribution facility in the Netherlands. Uh, we have a new online website, so people can go directly online in Europe and order directly from that website for the non-custom products. And then we have a whole range of more customized and on-package products uh, that you can reach out to us via the website or ecotensil.com is the website. And are you constantly working on new things, new concepts, new products? Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's our favorite thing. We love to have companies approach us and say, well, how are we going to replace this plastic spoon on this existing package? Here's what our equipment is. Here's the volumes that we need. Uh, here's our concerns with our buyers, our customers, and we love to help come up with solutions. And what's the reaction been like to the products so far? The reaction to the Ecotensile products, uh, particularly here in the U.S., where we've been around for about 10 years, has been very positive. Uh, we get a lot of love mail uh, on our Facebook. People, at first they look at them and they're like, oh, this is interesting. And once they try it, you know, they realize how, what a wonderful sampling experience that it is. They, they're viscerally more sustainable than plastic. And people just really respond to that. Like, we have stores that are doing demos and people respond to the demo, or at least they used to be doing demos. People <laughs> respond that they just really love that that company is not using plastic. It's a very positive reflection on the companies is what we're hearing back. And I guess it's one of those things, I'm trying to think of a good analogy and can't for the life of me, but it's one of those things that once you've used a product like this, you you don't really want to use anything else. It's true. Once we have a customer and they see how beautifully these work, no one ever wants to go back to plastic. Back to the UK now for a new product that's hitting the shelves in retailer Asda. One of the hottest cheeses in the UK, both in terms of sales and the fact it's got peppers in it, is Mexicana, which is produced by Norseland. 
Not new, definitely, but the company has now launched a plant-based version to accompany its Applewood vegan product, so the plant-based Mexicana is most definitely very new. And if that wasn't enough, the company makes a cheese advent calendar at Christmas, and so it's introducing a festive feast for flexitarians and vegans. To give us all the details about the new products is Lisa Harrison, Senior Brand Manager at Norseland. Northland's a UK leading specialist cheese company um, and we have brands such as Yarsberg which is the number one deli cheese with holes, Applewood which is the number one smoky cheese in the UK and Mexicana which is the number one spicy cheese and also in our range we've got Ilchester, Yarsberg Special Reserve, Applewood Vintage, Mexicana Extra Hot and we have the license for Marmite cheese as well. Um, the cheese is all stocked in all the major retailers. Um, we sell also to food service outlets and we also export to over 20 countries worldwide. Right. We were the first um, major dairy company to introduce a vegan cheese alternative and we launched Applewood Vegan last October through a partnership with V-Bites. They're the pioneers of plant-based foods and have been around since about 1983. So we launched it into Asda. They were the first supermarket to stock it. And within um, the first day, we actually sold out in about 40% of stores because it was so popular. It's doing well then. It's doing, yeah, it's doing incredibly well. We kind of knew it was going to do well because um, we did a pre-launch campaign and we got our consumers to sign up to a database. And yeah, the consumers were actually going mad for it, like asking us, when is it going to come out and when is it going to be listed? So um, we knew the demand was there. We didn't quite know how much demand was there. And yeah, there was a couple of times when we were going out of stock because obviously it was it was so popular. We also had consumers going into store, buying caseloads at a time and bragging about it on social media. It was quite a good problem to have and quite funny. But in a way, also, it was nice because consumers were then helping each other out, telling each other where they could buy it and what stores had stock and things like that. So A bit like the toilet rolls only before lockdown. Yeah, but not yeah. so many fist fights. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's not, I would say, specifically for the vegan market. It's probably aimed just as much at flexitarians as well, I imagine. Yeah, so we're actually um, targeting the flexitarian market because we're obviously a dairy company and that's at our heart. Um, we were trying to promote this idea of flexitarian eating to be better for the environment. It's good for the health as well. We actually launched an initiative called Flexi Friday, which was about um, an extra day a week to eat a plant-based diet so where you might miss applewood you could then replace it with applewood vegan on a friday yeah that seemed to to work well for flexitarians was that the reason behind going into the plant-based market in the first place to hit that flexitarian market yeah well we noticed that our applewood product was getting was winning lots of awards um with the vegetarian market and we saw that there was a rise in vegan products and it's you know the trend is is here to stay i believe so that's why we kind of tapped into that market. But also, as a dairy company, we want to ensure that both consumers, and whether you're dairy or whether you're vegan, that you can both enjoy the taste of Applewood. I guess with this being such a well-known brand, if you are a flexitarian and you liked the original products and tried the vegan version, it would have to be very, very close in terms of the texture profile and the flavor in order for people to keep buying it. So how did you ensure that it was as close as possible to the original version? Yeah, well, we were working with V-Bites and they had a really great base cheese that was really stringy, made from coconut, allergen-free. But we actually, because we own the Applewood flavoring, it was kind of easy for us to get the taste very similar with a good base cheese. So I think it's that kind of smooth and that flavor throughout the cheese that our consumers really love. Does it behave the same way as the 
dairy version of the cheese in terms of versatility and use in recipes and that kind of thing? Yeah, it acts just like a normal dairy cheese. It melts really well. It's quite stringy when it melts, so it's great for kind of pizzas or toasties or you can top kind of dishes with it. Um, you can bake it. You can also make a fondue. I've done that, um, make a fondue or cheese sauce. Was the success of the Applewood version what led to you deciding to do a vegan version of the Mexicana? So, yeah, obviously we found that it was massively popular um, with vegans and so... Uh, we decided to try and, and understand what product we should launch next. We've actually had a lot of consumers also asking us um, through our social media channels, we would make Mexicana vegan, so it seemed like the next best choice. And we know that we've got a really good base cheese, and we know that we've got a strong brand in Mexicana, and people love that fiery spice blend that we put in there and the bell and jalapeno peppers, so it seemed like the natural progression. And when is that coming out, that Sazda again in... Yeah, so we're launching that in Asda on the 20th of July, so not long now. And we're launching that as an exclusive with them for 12 weeks, and then it will be available for other retailers. Is it the same base as the Applewood one in terms of you didn't have to go right back to the drawing board with it, did you? No, because we know the formulation works. It's the same coconut base, got the added vitamin B12 and calcium in the product. Yeah, it's the melting cheese. It's allergen free, which is really important to us. It's got that unique Mexican spice blend um, and the bell and jalapeno peppers. So it delivers the same kick as Mexicana. You mentioned it's made in an allergen free factory, which a lot of, I guess, plant based aren't. They were done in the same factory, but on a different line. So yeah, it was it was really important for us, actually, because there were some sad stories like a couple of, in the last couple of years of cross contamination. So it was, it was really important for us to work with a supplier that could offer 100 percent allergen free. And V-Bytes has a factory that does just that. So, yeah, we're able to have an allergen-free product, which also means it's great for people who are not just vegans or flexitarians, but are lactose intolerant, gluten-free or soy-free, following those types of diets too. You have quite the range of foods and of cheeses with like the Jarlsberg and the Marmite one. Are there plans to develop any of those into vegan, if you're allowed to tell me? Um, we have some other plans to develop some new products this year. Um, at Christmas, we're going to bring out a vegan festive selection, which is a cheese board featuring four cheeses. So we'll have Applewood Vegan, Mexicana Vegan, a Melting Mature, which will be um, like a cheddar, and a blue cheese, which has a blue spill in a vein, so it looks like a blue cheese. And it's incredible. It tastes really, really good. So we're pretty excited about that. Once we launch that, we'll also then make the melting mature and the blue cheese available as standalone products. Only so. six months to wait for that one then. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> we we're working a little bit ahead of plans and I, and there will be other products in the pipeline. We see this, we've got, we seem to be going to a good thing with our base cheese um, and we're getting the flavours right. We do a lot of testing with our consumers to make sure we're getting the product right. And also we've got strong brands that we can launch them under. So we've already got consumers who are loyal to those brands who have obviously changed their eating habits. Sure. Do you think that's been a big help to the popularity of them, the fact that they're aligned with dairy versions of the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've done a bit of research and consumers really miss some of the products that they used to eat when they weren't vegan. So with a well-recognized brand like Applewood or Mexicana, it kind of makes it an easy purchase decision when you already know what something's going to taste like. Yeah, I think price point makes a difference as well because people are not really willing to try it if it's about six pounds and the regular one is two pounds, whereas this one, it's pretty close 
it's about a 15% premium in price, but we were very conscious that we wanted to make the product affordable to our consumers um, and not price ourselves out of the market. So it's a good price for that standard of vegan cheese. I hate to mention the festive product when it's 28 degrees outside, but what was the reasoning behind doing that festive one? Is that Was that just to give an alternative to the advent calendar? So we specialise um, and have done for many years in Christmas products. So um, we do a lot of normal dairy cheese boards working with all the retailers. Um, and so we saw this as a kind of a natural progression, really, to create a cheese board. We've done a kind of a pre-launch campaign to test the idea with our consumers and they've gone absolutely wild for it. So we know it's going to be a good seller. Do you sell online as well? We don't sell ourselves online, but we work with Feebytes. They sell some of our products online and most of the retailers are stocking them online now. So if it goes, if it's sold in retail, it will be sold on their online stores as well. Now it's ice cream. In the US, Rethink Ice Cream has reformulated its products and added both collagen and lactose-free A2 to the ingredient list of its portfolio of flavours. To tell us about the products, the flavours, and first of all the company, is its founder, George Haymaker. First of all, could you tell us something about the company? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. The genesis of the brand kind of harkens back to about eight years ago when I was when I uh, hit a bottom from alcohol and drug addiction. You know, I was in a bad place and kind of had to rethink everything in my life. So once I stopped drinking, my body was craving sugar. You know, it's very typical for alcoholics and addicts to transfer their addiction from their drug of choice over to something else, whether it be coffee or smoking or, in my case, sugar. And so I was eating a lot of unhealthy treats, putting on weight, and, you know, recognized that I was transferring addiction. So I started looking around for healthier treats that I still enjoyed. And, you know, ice cream was always a favorite of mine. And I couldn't find one that tasted any good that was healthier. And so I decided to make my own. And that's kind of the genesis of the company. The mission of the company is to make the healthiest, best tasting and textured ice creams in the world. And also to, you know, give back to the communities that we serve and, you know, help people that are struggling the way that I once did. So Rethink is my personal platform to give back, hopefully on a large scale someday and help people with mental health and addiction issues. And so you know, we set about to make a product that tasted every bit as good as a traditional ice cream. That was the key. That was the kind of the driving tenant. And also then to make it as healthy as we could, responsible to people's health, but also then to put some additional health supplement in it that people were looking for in their diets anyway. Seems like when you were saying that, it seemed as if it was very natural. That, okay, you had this idea and then all of a sudden you come up with an ice cream. Did you have background in doing that or how did you actually come across the, the product itself? Yes, what I do have a background in is, is entrepreneurialism. So I've been an entrepreneur since I was 30. And so my mind just kind of works that way. If I see that a, a market doesn't have a product to fill it, then I just think that maybe there's an opportunity there. So that was kind of where I came to it from, that place. But what I did is I started working with a nutritionist slash trainer, and then we hired a food scientist. I focused on what I wanted the overall product to be, what I wanted it to deliver to the consumer. 
but ice cream is pretty finicky like baking. And, you know, while there aren't that many ingredients, uh, slight tweaks one way or another and any particular ingredient makes a huge difference. So you have to have a food scientist, you know, in order to build the product. But, you know, so I, I've learned a lot along the way in terms of food science and, you know, how ice cream works and how to design it, but I'm still not a food scientist. So I, I need one of those. And I have a really good one that I work with. And I guess it also helps when you had that vision of knowing exactly what it was that you wanted to start with, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, we put a focus group together and talk to a group of people about what they would want to see in an ice cream in addition to my own thoughts and the most important health supplements to them and the most important health attributes, whether it be low sugar, low calorie, low fat, and just basically took that data and began to build the ice cream. And you've just done a, a reformulation. Was the ice cream previous to this, was it um, lactose-free and did it have collagen in it? Or is that what the reformulation is? Yeah, great question. So we had our original formula out in the market, you know, again, built the way that I just described. You know, you try to think of everything up front, <laughs> but of course, you don't always get it completely right. So, you know, the ice cream's done very well. People love it. But what happened was, you know, we do a lot of sampling out in the marketplace at grocery stores and events and farmers markets. And we were hearing from a lot of people that they no longer consume dairy. And so when you look at that, it's not so much that they're vegan. It's that people are now having a real problem digesting dairy. The numbers were significant. I mean, out of every 10 people that I would sample, I would get that response from, you know, two to three. And when you blow that ratio out over a large group of people, that's a lot of people. So I started looking into it further, and it turns out there's 50 million people in the United States that no longer consume dairy because it bothers their stomachs. And so I said, well, heck, there may be another opportunity there. And so I started doing research and understanding what the problem was. Most people associate it with being lactose intolerant. But in fact, you know, I'm 60 years old, and when I was a kid, milk had lactose in it. It has for thousands of years, and nobody ever seemed to have a problem with it before. So what's changed? Well, what's changed is here in the United States, cows have been mutated to make them more productive, give off more milk and give off more meat. So they've gotten larger, and they've developed this new protein chain called the A1 protein chain. It's, it's a series of casein proteins. And, you know, with people having consumed milk for thousands of years, the human body's very used to digesting the milk the way that it was, but not used to digesting the milk the way that it had become now with this A1 chain of proteins in it. And so the human body's rejecting it in a lot of cases. It causes indigestion and cramping and so on. Um, and some people more extreme than others. And so... That is why there is now this new class of milk called A2 milk that's in the supermarkets, and that is milk the way that it used to be. The cows uh, do not have this A1 protein. They're smaller. They're kept separate from all other cows in, in separate herds and not allowed to breed, not allowed to be mutated. And so they give off traditional A2 milk that is absent this A1 protein. And so in order to fully guarantee the consumer that we could provide a tummy-friendly product, we had to make that A2 milk lactose-free. So that's what we have done. The primary driver to this reformulation is to use lactose-free A2 dairy because that 
tells the 50 million consumers that have a problem with dairy that they can now consume a dairy ice cream again and not have a problem with it. So that was the driver. And then we said, well, as long as we're going to go through all this, let's look at everything else and see what else we might want to change. And so prior to, in the original formula, we were adding green tea extract because it's a great antioxidant, but it's expensive. And I was not getting the marketing bang for the buck. I wasn't getting the wow factor from the consumer by putting it in. So we started looking around at other supplements and seeing what was hot on the market. And the three things that came to mind were CBD oil, MCT oil, and collagen. There's problems with the first two, uh, CBD because it's highly regulated, and then um, MCT oil because it can cause indigestion in some people, and it wouldn't be very good if we were solving indigestion on one hand and then causing it on another. So we settled on collagen. Collagen's obviously great for joint health, great for the skin, hair, and nails. It does very well in an ice cream mix. And so we decided to add uh, collagen peptides to our base mix. The other thing we really like about it is nobody else is doing it. So those two changes in and of themselves are first time to ice cream. No one has a collagen ice cream uh, that I'm aware of, and no one has an ice cream using A2 dairy at all. There are some lactose-free ice creams, but that doesn't solve the whole tummy issue unless you're using A2 milk as well. So we are the only ice cream in the world that I'm aware of that is using lactose-free A2 dairy and that has collagen. As subsequent benefits to this, we also changed our butterfat source from cream, because typically ice cream has cream in it as well as milk, to using ghee. Ghee is a clarified butterfat, and it adds a very rich texture to our ice cream. So as an added benefit to this reformulation, our ice cream is now even creamier and richer than it was before, and it's softer out of the freezer. So we've just gotten a ton of new benefit out of this reformulation, some of them unanticipated at the outset. You mentioned where the A2 milk comes from. What's the source of the collagen? It's a bovine collagen, so collagen can come either from marine, the sea, or it can come from cows. And because we make a dairy ice cream, we decided to use bovine collagen. You mentioned a little while ago about how you sort of decided upon collagen and you looked at other products as well. Do you think that you'll do any other products with different health benefits in the future? Well... Um, We already are, actually, because when we do flavor, we have certain flavors that have health supplements as flavoring agents. So as an example, we have a flavor called, you know, cardamom pistachio. So it's pistachio flavoring with actual cardamom added to it. Cardamom is a great antioxidant. So we have other flavors just like that. Turmeric ginger, coconut matcha. So matcha is a concentrated green tea extract. So By using these other health supplements, we're flavoring the ice cream, but we're also getting additional health benefit. So when I sit down and try to design flavor combinations, that's always in the top of mind, health. You know, how can I give the consumer more for their money? What else is being recommended by nutritionists out in the market? And how can I use those as flavoring agents? And you just updated the packaging. Was a part of that reasoning for having the more health claims on there and explaining more to the consumers what's in it? Yeah, two reasons. One is 
you know, when we made the change to lactose-free A2 dairy and putting in collagen, obviously we needed to redo the packaging to let people know that that's what's in there. You know, so the packaging is not just a, an advertisement. It has to meet FDA requirements. So it's very stringent. <laughs> you can only say certain things and you can only say them certain ways. And it has to go through a review board. So, you know, we had to change the packaging anyway. In addition to learning about the ice cream over the first year and year plus out in the market, we also learned about the packaging, certain things that could be done better. And so we made those changes. One of the drivers was, you know, when you go into a grocery store and you look at the ice cream aisle, you know, your eye is drawn to certain packaging because it's bright, colorful, it's eye-catching, and a lot of that is psychology. So our packaging originally was not dramatic enough. It didn't pull your eye towards it. It's very attractive, but it wasn't eye-catching enough because you only get, you know, three to five seconds of a consumer's time when they're walking down an aisle. So you want the, you want it to pop off the shelf and have them look closer. That's what you really want the initial design to do is to draw their attention. And then they, you know, what you're hoping is that they take a really close look or pull one out of the freezer and start looking at it. And then at that point, yeah, you want, every word that you use, every symbol that you use to be well thought out to deliver the type of clean, simple messaging that you want it to deliver. Because, you know, you only have so much space on the packaging and you want it to give the consumer the information you want them to take as cleanly and as quickly as possible. And so, you know, our messaging was not as well done as it could have been. We've used more symbols now, pictures, because it's very associative for people to see a picture and see some words associated with it to get the full impression of what we want to have them take away. And a lot of these are around the health attributes. So, for example, on the front, we have one symbol that has a milk bottle, and it says, you know, A2A2 dairy, kind of in a semicircle around the top. It says lactose-free underneath as the bottom part of the circle, and then it says tummy-friendly across the middle. We're giving the consumer the full messaging in that one little symbol that we want them to take away, that they, this is a lactose-free A2 dairy product that's tummy-friendly. For sure. Yeah, you're, you're right. There's just so many products in the that particular space. It's hard to stand out. Do you also do things like social media to to try and get the message across as well? You know, what's interesting, Jim, is that when I was younger, I think the adage was you had to touch people uh, seven different times, seven different ways of marketing in order to get them to, you know, take action on your product. And in today's age with technology and people's more limited attention spans, you need to touch them three times that amount now in a bunch of different ways in order to get them to take action. So our marketing strategy is all around, yeah, there's social media. Uh, we do a lot of sampling it's a multi-layered, multi-faceted marketing strategy to get to the consumer a bunch of different ways to try to get them to take action on our product. You know, the most important of which we found is to actually have them try the ice cream because, you know, healthier ice creams in this country typically don't taste very good. So for us to be able to produce a great tasting one, people aren't a believer until they actually put it in their mouths. Do you have any more new flavors in the pipeline, if you're allowed to tell me that is? We have a, a smoky maple pecan that we're working on, a mixed berry with acai. Those are the two that will be coming out next. 
you got to be careful in this environment when you're building a brand not to have too many flavors, not to have too many sizes, because you can begin to cannibalize yourself. And, you know, the grocery stores are only going to give you so much space anyway. So we're in the process of just building the brand, trying to scale. Uh, we have 14 flavors. That's enough. And, you know, over time, what we'll do is take the ones that aren't moving as well and maybe scrap those and refresh the flavors over time. But right now, our focus is on just, you know, scaling the brand, getting the products to sell more through the grocery stores that we're in so that, you know, we can get to that self-sufficiency and then begin to work on other things. Now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from Stone X. This week uh, saw the dairy market suffer a little bit from summer blues with basically a lot of guys out of the market uh, taking some time off even if they can't travel very far with corona and uh, they're taking some time off from the office and the, and the phones. We've seen butter come down a little bit and skimmel powder stay pretty flat. The butter coming down has been a bit of a conundrum really because when you try to uh, compare it to, to cream which you know went from trading last Friday around the 3900 level to um, trading closer to 4100 euros a ton this week you would expect butter to also be a little bit stronger but we've had uh, August September butter drop by about 50 euros to the 3450 level quarter four was down about 100 110 euros to around trading around the 3490 level in the futures and quarter one has been also down a bit uh, trading around 3525 uh, level in quarter one uh, say skimmel powder has been pretty flat gone from maybe trading in quarter three around the 2145 to 2160 level to the 2145 level quarter four continues to trade around the 2200 level and quarter one around the 2250 level way has also been uh, equally stable trading around the uh, 760 level thanks liam talk to you again next week stone x formerly intlfc stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services as well as otc hedging tool and MA advisory services to the global dairy industry and that's it. Another busy and varied podcast. And it's the same again next week. Not the same guests, obviously, but next week we have interviews with Danone, Food Union, Swiss Decode and Digibio. So I hope you will join us again for another lockdown lowdown on what's new in the very diverse world that is the dairy industry. So until next time, have a great week, stay safe and as always, thanks for listening.